We are creatures desperate for approval. Every one of us. We are creatures desperate for approval, and most especially from people whose opinion we think matters. Uh, think with me how that plays itself out. How slow we are to raise our hand in class and ask a question. How hesitant we are to speak up and tell the group, maybe even a group of people we feel comfortable with, what we really think about the issue that's being discussed. Um, how, how fervently we try to talk ourselves into really liking what everyone else says is so great. Do we outgrow this? Do we outgrow this desire to be approved of and, and liked? No, no. You think just how us biggins, uh, well, how slow we are, how hesitant we are, how much we abhor the idea of no to anyone. We don't know how, it's the, like we don't know how to use the word. We don't know how to use that part of our tongue and our lips to say no to someone who has made a request of us, in particular even of our children. We don't even want to tell them no. Why? Because we so want people's approval. We are desperate to be liked, especially from people whose opinion means something to us, even if the opinion, their opinion means nothing to anyone else. It does to us. Well, what if I told you that that longing for approval and acceptance was actually a reflection of something incredibly deep, a much deeper longing for approval and acceptance? And if we could go to the root of that, we would finally be set free from the tyranny of opinion polls. If we knew whose approval and acceptance we could really have that wouldn't go anywhere, it might just break the chains, the shackles, the bondage we feel towards having to have acceptance and approval by everyone else. Look with me if you have a Bible with you this morning to John, John's Gospel, chapter 19. Uh, this is a little short series we're doing of, of post-resurrection, post-Easter reflections. Uh, we did one, of course, with Easter Sunday last week. We're doing one this week. Lord willing, the plan is to do one more next week uh, before we get back into our series. Well, actually, we're going to do another one after that. So, yeah, we've got two more after this. Um, John 19. This is the fourth of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. John 19, just, well, three verses is all I want to look at. Read, and actually, we're only going to be looking at uh, three words in one of those verses for the next few minutes. John 19, starting in verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. It is sure, making wise the simple. It is right, rejoicing the heart, pure, enlightening the eyes, clean, enduring forever, true, righteous altogether. 
to be desired than gold, than fine gold, sweeter than honey, than the drippings of the honeycomb. Lord, our souls need to be revived. We are simple and need to be made wise. Our hearts need joy. Our eyes need enlightening. And we long for these real riches and this deeper sweetness. We ask that you, you have, you have spoken. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for inspiring the Apostle John, working through him in a mysterious way, such that because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we really can say that there is nothing more or less here recorded than what you wanted to be recorded. And uh, so we give us ears with which to hear this morning. Change us, we ask. Uh, we, we came in this room, sat down one way. Wait, may we not leave the same way we came in because of a, an encounter with the living, risen Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm sorry, sir, that's on a need-to-know basis. Now, what on earth does that mean when you hear those words? What does that mean? It means that the information that you are seeking is uh, sensitive and therefore restrictive. It means it doesn't matter what kind of security clearance you may have. You are only privy to that information so long as it has bearing on the fulfilling of your particular duties. Need-to-know basis. Case in point, the build-up to D-Day, the Allied invasion of Normandy in June 1944. Thousands! of people involved in the planning of D-Day, but only a very select few had an understanding of the whole picture. Need to know. Need to know. Well, the fact is, though, there are some things, I know this sounds counter to what I just said, but there are some things we all have a need to know. And the chief of them all is what we've been singing of and celebrating here this morning stemming from last week, that Christ is risen. We need to know that. There are some things that, upon which we need to have the proof and the, the, the foundation that we can then move. The resurrection, we said this last week, is the greatest event in the history of the world since the beginning of the world. It is so significant that, that the, the vistas, the choices, the avenues, the paths that we could go in terms of talking about what difference does it make I don't even know where to stop. I hardly know where to start. I certainly don't know where to end in terms of the depth, the extent, the heights, the breadth of the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. If, in fact, the tomb is empty, if, in fact, he came forth from the grave, it changes literally, and this is no exaggeration, everything, everything on planet Earth. Last week we talked about this, that one of the implications of the, the historical time and space reality of Jesus coming forth from the grave is it logically therein means he in fact is who he said he is, given that he came forth from the grave, given the reality of the resurrection. We know then he is who he said he is. Well, then who did he say he is? Well, the resurrection, that's a great question, and the resurrection is the grounds for that very good conversation. But there's another route we can go, and we're going to go that route now this morning in terms of talking about significance and the implications.
given that he's risen, given that the tomb is empty, given that he came forth from the grave, given that what we've been reading uh, this last week is so very true, it means that not only is that he is who he says he is, it also means, by extension, he did what he said he would do. He is who he said he is. Equally so, he did what he said he was going to do. Now, what did he say he was going to do? Well, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. We need to talk about that and then consider the implications of it because whatever the answer is, we cannot ignore it. We cannot ignore what it is that he said he was going to do because he's done it. We can't afford to ignore that, but rather we need to take it into our hearts. Some of you are familiar with the seven words sometimes talked about in certain traditions of the church around Friday in particular, Passion Week, Holy Week leading up to, to that. Um, the seven words is a way of referring to, not seven in particular, narrowly defined as seven words, but seven sayings. The last seven um, utterances of Jesus once you look at the four Gospels as he's hanging there on the cross. The sixth of the seven is what I want to look at here this morning. The sixth of the seven words of Jesus. They're in John 19, verse 30. Those three words in English, it is finished. It is finished. What is finished? What is he talking about? When Jesus says, it is finished, what is the it? What is it that is now finished? I want to use, uh, in getting at that, I want to, I've got three points. You can see it there in line. The first two are this, and it's negative. I'll acknowledge it. It's like a glass half empty kind of thing. Um, so here's your Eeyore answer, your puddle glum answer. Um, first two things are what he doesn't mean when he says it is finished. The, he's not primarily talking about these two things. Those are the first two points. And the third is what does he mean? What does he actually really mean? The freight of the meaning of the it, and it is finished. And what do we do with that? Okay, let's look at these in turns. The first one is, he's not really speaking about the struggle. This is not a cry of resignation. Jesus is not just another victim. He's not just another martyr who's died a senseless death. Now think with me how, though, how things looked at the moment. You know, it is finished. Think how most people, everyone actually, there at the foot of the cross, heard those words. That because of the filter through which they're hearing, the, have understood him to, to what they understood him to mean when he says it is finished. His enemies, his enemies, okay. What do they think when they hear those words? They're thinking it's victory. The, the Jewish leaders, the Roman officials, they're thinking finally we're rid of this guy. We're rid of this troublemaker. Finally, he's done. Let's go, let's do lunch. It's done. He's finished. The enemies from hell, the demonic realm, finally, this horrible incursion into this world by the Son of God, we knew who he was all along, finally, he's done. It is finished. So they thought, for about a day and a half. For his enemies, it seemed like it was, the, it, was, it was victory, is what they thought. 
His friends, however, heard it as the, the words of defeat. This is the worst possible thing. As they're standing there or hiding off in the crowds, this is the worst possible thing that they could have imagined. After everything they've seen, after everything that he has been telling them, is it now just all a ruse? Is it all just, was it just a lie? Was it just a game? There he is. And he's saying, it is finished. That's how things looked. That's how they sounded. Which is an utter contrast, starkly, to how things actually were. Now, let's not play this down. What he went through. And how he is suffering at that moment. The rejection of his people that he has endured in his time on this earth. The injustice of his case before the Roman authorities and how the travesty of justice this was. The betrayal of his friends. The physical agony that he's going through. They're hanging on by the spikes in the joints of his wrists and his feet. So let's not play that down by, by any stretch. But let's take a closer look. Lest we think he's just another martyr. Let's look again at verse 30. Paying a little bit closer attention to what the details as to how John records it for us. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He bowed his head. The words, the implication is, he laid it down as we would on a pillow to go to sleep. That's what the meaning of those words are when it says he bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. His life was not taken. It was given. So who's in charge here? Is he a victim? Or is he a victor? What's really going on? You see, when he says it is finished, he is not really referring to his death. He's not really, in no way is he just another martyr. Some of you know I'm from Virginia. So, um, you know, that great Virginian, Thomas Jefferson, a man of many talents, of many interests, wrote the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, popularly known as the Jefferson Bible. Now, this is uh, crafted. I won't say written. It was more crafted, like those of you who do uh, creative memory and, uh, you know, the cutting and pasting in your scrapbooks. That's basically Thomas Jefferson was your, your predecessor. He took a New Testament. He took a New Testament and, and all the references to the miracles and nearly every reference to the supernatural, he cut out and took the, that, the, the remnants of that, and made his own gospel account. And here's how it ends, the Jefferson Bible. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein never man yet laid there laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. The end. I'd say TJ should have stayed around to the end. He missed the most important part. The cross, yes, is the symbol of the faith. The cross, yes, was a means of horrific execution, dehumanizing the victim. The cross was also God's ordained means by which he could prove himself, show himself, to be both just and merciful at the time. But that's not where the story stops. 
Good Friday yields to Easter Sunday, which then yields to Easter Monday. Now, Easter Monday, we don't, we don't do anything with Easter Monday. All over the world, there's, there are traditions and different vestiges of the church that celebrate this holiday known as Easter Monday. You know what we do as Westerners with Easter Monday? We go back to work. At best, you might find it in fine print in your page-per-day bird calendar. Maybe. We, as resurrection people, live in Easter Monday. Every day is Easter Monday, living in light of He is risen and risen indeed. And that changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Christ has done, my friends, it has to then mean He has done what He said He was going to do. What has He done? Well, it wasn't just this wasn't just, it is finished about the struggle, nor, the second point, nor was it just about our salvation. Now, I need to explain that. Let me, so give me a minute and I will. The claims of some regarding what was accomplished there with the cross and the empty tomb, the claims of some needs to be examined and buried. It goes like this, the logic, the understanding, and a lot of people made a lot of money writing books with this kind of thought. God hates suffering. Jesus came. It's part of the curse, okay? God hates suffering. It's part of the curse. Jesus came to end the curse. Therein, Christians shouldn't have suffered. In terms of a leap of logic. So why then do Christians suffer? If, if suffering is bad, God hates suffering, it's part of the curse. Jesus came to do away with the curse. Christians shouldn't have to suffer. Why then do we suffer? Well, we don't have enough faith. Right? That's, that's the answer. We need to grow up. We need to grow in our spiritual vitality. We need to trust God more. Those are the kinds of answers that are given. What does God say, though? That's not what God says. That's not the truth of Scripture. That's heresy. The Bible speaks, God speaks clearly to the reality of suffering in this world now. Jesus says, take up your cross daily, not your recliner. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ bids a man to come and follow me, he bids him come and die. History, what unfolded for the apostles. Every one of them, in some way, died a martyr's death. All of them executed, except for John, who was exiled as a very old man under the island of Patmos. What are we going to say? They didn't have enough faith? They needed to trust God more? Are we going there? No, I hope not. Now the reason, the reason then for the suffering is that, my friends, we live between the ages. We live between the ages. The kingdom, Jesus spoke again and again of the kingdom, and He is the king. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. Or put another way, His work of salvation with the cross and the empty tomb has been accomplished, but it is yet to be fully applied. It has been fully accomplished, but yet to be fully applied. So when he says it is finished, he is not talking about the full scope 
of His work of salvation. There's more yet to come. And we've got to be clear on that. Think with me, just uh, some analogies here. I, I'm using uh, here Johnny Erickson Todd and Steve Eastus, their wonderful book, When God Weeps. Okay? When, if you want to say there's an oak in every acorn, that doesn't then mean you get out the saw and, and take it to the acorn and start cutting planks. If Congress passes the Clean Water Act, or whatever I'm going to name it, if Congress passes the Clean Water Act, that doesn't then mean, goes in effect tomorrow, that doesn't then mean Tuesday we take drinking cups down to the Cumberland River and start taking a swig. These things take time. Time to unfold. We understand that in some same here. His work of salvation fully accomplished, but it has yet to be fully applied. The prophet said again and again through the course of, of centuries that one day the lion will lie down with the lamb, and the one who is to accomplish that has come. But you know what happened to the first century Christians? They were put into arenas with lions, and those lions crushed their bones. There's timing involved with the unfolding of these promises and these assurances. Now, why is that important? It's vitally important that we have a right understanding of how things are now, of the time between the ages in which we live now. We need to have our expectations set right now. We need to understand how things are now. We would be prepared for when the storm comes and understand why. It's how it is. That's why. And then, after the storm has come, as we're picking up the pieces, we can reflect, we can have right expectations beforehand, we can have right reflections afterwards, understanding, being comforted with the assurance, with the knowledge, not of exactly why it happened. Can't know that in this life but with the assurance and the comfort of knowing there is a why, there is a purpose to whatever it is that happened. And that God in His power and mercy can, be the, can bring the most wonderful good out of the most horrendous evil. The cross and the empty tomb prove that. It's a paradigm that we've got to look at and hold to. Again, Christ is risen. As a consequence of the resurrection, we know then he's done what it is he said he would do. Now again, though, what is it he said he would do? It's not Again, this is not chiefly his words. It is finished. John 19, verse 30. Again, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. That's not chiefly talking about his death. That's not chiefly talking, really, about the scope of our salvation. It's talking about, third point, his mission. It's talking about his mission. It is finished. What was finished? His mission. What he was sent to do. Let's look at the word chosen that he uses here. That we translate. Actually, those three words in the English is one word in the Greek. Tetelestai. I'm going to give you a little Greek grammar lesson this morning, so hang in. Okay? It's just one word, so you can, do, you can handle it. Well, also the original verb form is teleo. But, okay, you can do that too. To telestai means to finish. It means to fulfill. 
Given certain context, though, it can also mean to accomplish a task. You send someone on an errand. You come back to Telestai. It is finished. Um, it can also refer to the payment of a debt. Paid in full. To Telestai. It is finished. So when you take that into the larger context of the whole of biblical teaching, what we see here is what Jesus is referring to here, chiefly, is his work of redemption. His, his freeing a people bound in enslavement at a price. In his case, it was the highest price. Now, the, the, the Jews had been, the world, but the Jewish people in particular, because they had the Old Testament, had been waiting for this for centuries. Waiting and waiting, and, and we read from Exodus 12 just a little while ago as a part of the waiting. We, waiting for this cleansing that was to come for centuries, these ceremonies and rites, all given by God to picture and point forward to what it was that was needed and who it was that was coming and how it was it was going to be taken care of. But this goes on for centuries and it's cultivating this longing and longing and when, and when, come thou long expected Jesus. If I can merge Easter with Christmas. The Passover, this, is, this all comes about by no accident in sync with the Passover, the celebration, the annual celebration where the, the Jews would take the blood of a lamb, a sacrifice, in their stead, sprinkled upon the door frames of their homes. And now, now, the Lamb of God has come. The, lamb, the blood of the Lamb of God has been spilled. The redemption price to Telestai. It is accomplished. It is paid. It is finished. It is fulfilled. It is done. That's the word that's chosen there. But let me also press a little further. You, if you want to hang with me, just hang, well, please do hang with me, whether you want to or not. In terms of not just the word that's chosen, but the tense that's used with the word. I just want to be specific here. Note the tense. It's not the future tense. It will be finished. Or the present tense. It is being finished. But rather, the, it's the, actually technically the perfect tense, meaning it's something that's happened in the past with ongoing consequence. So what Jesus is saying here is this. It has been and remains forever finished. It has been and remains forever finished. That's a little long, but that's basically what it means. There's nothing to be added. Do you understand? There's nothing to be added. It has been and forever will be finished to Telestai. The ransom has been paid over. I can use images from elsewhere in John's Gospel. The good shepherd has laid his life down for his sheep, John 10. Or as Colin was reminding us in the Good Friday service, John 1. The Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world, fully and finally. It's done. Or, or if, if I can, instead of using an image, let me appeal now to a, a person. As an example, it turned back just one or two pages, depending on your Bible, how it's laid out. John 18. John 18, uh, towards the very, very end of the chapter, verses 38 through 40. John 18, verses 38 through 40. Uh, now, you're gonna, this is in the course of Jesus' trial um, with Pilate. After he, uh, that's Pilate, had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. It's referring to Jesus. 
But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now you take all the things we know about Barabbas from all the sources. We know that he was a robber. We know that he was a murderous thief. We know that he was a leader of an insurrection, really a political terrorist is what it comes down to, just to speak frankly. We know also that he seen, there's a reason to believe he was involved in some big something, some big event, and that's why he had been apprehended and arrested, was on the verge of being crucified himself. And Pilate is trying to work things such that Jesus will be the one, that, based on the traditions, one will be set free around that time. Pilate's trying to angle things so that Jesus, he can get out of this. Jesus will The crowd saying, no, we want Barabbas. And so Barabbas goes free. Now, that's the history. That's the historical record. Now, bear with me as I indulge with a little historical fiction. Okay? Imagine the following week. That witnesses observe this same Barabbas around that site where the crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion, took place. They, they say, Barabbas, he's just, he's, he seems aimless. He, he's talking, muttering to himself. He's just wandering around. He's rubbing his wrists all the time. He seems bothered, troubled, unrest stirring in his soul. Barabbas has contacts. He knows people. High places, in fact. So he sends a note to Pilate back at the, uh, the uh, headquarters. And the note reads something like this. Are you sure I can go? Are you, are you sure that, that it's, it's done free? Are you sure? And a few days later, he re receives a curt reply from Pontius Pilate. Yes, go home. It is finished. Now here's my question. Are we hearing that? Because in many ways, we are Barabbas. Are we hearing that? Or are we just wandering around the cross, rubbing our wrists, troubled and unsettled? Are we hearing the words, not now from Pilate, of course, in my silly fiction, but from Jesus? Are we hearing what he said? What would be the signs Signs, for instance, we're not hearing. Well, when suffering comes, we get angry and resentful at God because we believe we work so hard and we deserve so much better. When, by this way, it's not if, but when others disappoint us, we get angry, we get resentful, and we won't forgive. These are all signs that we're not hearing what Jesus said. When called on to give of ourselves, to sacrifice of ourselves, we might, just because we're shamed into it, but it'll be bare and begrudging and, again, resentful. Those are all signs we're not really hearing those words, it is finished. What might then be signs we are hearing it? That when the suffering comes, we grieve, of course we do. And we're disappointed, of course we are. But at the same time, we're comforted by the goodness and comfort of the Lord himself and the reality that he is with us. When others disappoint us, we see ourselves in them and what they've done to us. We know, I would do the same. And so we show mercy. When called upon to give, when called upon to sacrifice, we don't see it as an imposition, but as an opportunity 
to respond in love towards our Lord and towards his people and those maybe who have yet to be. You see, Christ is risen. The tomb is, is empty. It is finished. He's done what he said he would do. He really has. Now last week, we honed in really hard on John 14, 6. Remember, I'm not going to ask you to repeat it. I know you memorized it with me, and I appreciate that. But, but John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a proclamation to the world. And it meets with great resistance. Now here, this is looking not at John 14, 6, but John 19, 30, where Jesus says, it is finished. And that is meant to be an assurance to our souls. And you know what? That message also meets with resistance. Doesn't it? I'll leave you with this. There are many good spiritual things that you can be doing. Many good spiritual things you can be doing. Reading your Bible, praying, serving others, giving to good causes, being here like the good Christians you are on a Sunday morning. Many good spiritual things that you can be doing. And those things, by the way, have a way of building up your faith. I'm not really trying to be sarcastic. I know I sound like those. Those things do build up and strengthen your faith. That's why God refers to them as means of grace. They also express the faith. Spiritual things that we do, they express, they communicate to, to, to anyone listening or observing what we actually believe. Where our hope and trust actually is. Those spiritual things that we do. Now I want to give you one more spiritual thing that we need to be doing a little bit more of as an expression of where our heart is if, in fact, we believe it is finished. You ready? Sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do is to take a nap. What? Has he lost his mind, perhaps? But think with me. Before you start the heresy trial, sometimes it is better, instead of picking up your Bible, it is better for you to lay down on the couch. What? That's like against everything I've ever been told. Yes, it is. And it's against every inclination of your heart, isn't it? To do, and to do, and to do, and to do a little more, and maybe to outdo the person next to you. You see, this is where I'm going with this, the context. I understand the context. If, I know that's being recorded, but please don't play it back outside the full context of everything I'm trying to say. The context of this is, if by your laying down and taking a nap you are no longer running about trying to make things happen. If by your laying down a nap, you are no longer trying to make up for all your past and present and anticipated screw-ups, then that nap is a beautiful thing. 
You see where I'm going with this? Some of you will be very well rested tomorrow, I trust. But see, if in fact Jesus is speaking truth, which we know he is, if in fact the, the, the tomb is empty, if in fact he is risen, and he is risen indeed, then it is finished. He has done what he said he would do. He has done what he said he was doing, which means we need to. There are times we need to cease and desist. We need to stop and rest. We need to lay down, lay it all down. Christ has risen. He is who he said he is. He's done what he said he would do. And my friends, we dare not ignore that, but rather take it to heart. Let's pray. Lord. And we call you that, and we ask that you'd help us mean it. For centuries, in the traditions of the church, at Easter time, we say, Christ is risen, and it's no small thing to say. But Lord, too often, we are like casual tourists, just kind of milling about the outside of the tomb, without looking in. And not, not stopping to think and consider what it is we've seen. Oh, would you tune our ears to the words of the witnesses. Help us to be careful observers and open to the, to the evidence. The dawn of Easter morn brings light to everything. And there's no more shadow. No more need for absolute, utter despair. No more need for just feelings of abandon and hopelessness. For you are and said you are, and you've done what you said you would do when you said it is finished. So that's an, it's brought an end to our works and an end to even wondering where we stand. You've made us so clear. So we ask that you'd help us to look towards you in these coming days and weeks and months and years and however much we have left on this earth to look to you and trust and dependence, and faith. Because now we know. Now we know. Amen.